Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and Boon people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land we broadcast from. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal people listening in today. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Say the Podcast. This episode is going to be a real fun one. We're going to be talking to Kimmy, who's 23 and an up-and-coming fashion designer, a dancer, a polyglot. I think that sums it up pretty nicely. She made the move from Australia to Vietnam, and she's currently chasing her dreams. And of course, Kimmy is located in Ho Chi Minh City, while I am located in Melbourne. So, we conducted this interview over the phone, and this is pretty much how it went. But before we dig in deeper into the conversation, I asked Kimmy to introduce herself and share her story. Um, so, I was born and raised in Melbourne by my mom, who's Vietnamese, my father, who's Ethiopian. Um, they split when I was four years old, and ever since then, I've been mostly with my mother. Also got a couple of other siblings. Sometimes on this count, I've got five. I'm the eldest. I grew up in the inner city suburbs of Melbourne, so it's pretty multicultural, really forward-looking, outward-looking, really fun and inspiring. Ever since I was maybe 14, 15, when I started studying languages at school, it really made me open my eyes to how much there is outside of Melbourne, outside of Australia. And um, that's when I started working towards making my goals come true. So when I was 14, I was studying French. I was like, okay, when I finish school, what am I going to do? Not school is, I don't want to do that. I want to do something that for me would be much more meaningful. And that was to go to France, and practice the language that I've been studying, get to know the culture, get to know the people, sample the cuisine, and see how I go. So as soon as I could, I got a job, started working, and saving my money, and seeing where I like, where it would take me. Turned 18, and actually it was just before I turned 18. This was like 17, three weeks away from my 18th birthday. Had my passport done, had my plane tickets booked. Um, and you had my first week of accommodation booked, nothing else. It was a four-week trip and I flew over to Paris to realize my dream that I've been working towards for so long. So I'm pretty proud of my 15-year-old self for having that sort of mindset, putting the goal in place and working towards it and being there to go through it, live it, enjoy it. After going abroad just for the short little vacation, four weeks, came back, started studying at university. One of the main draw cards for me was the exchange program. If I was gonna go study at university, I wanna get something more out of it than just your typical university experience. And for me, that was the opportunity to study abroad and spend a year abroad. So um, after having done that, I still wanted more. I came back to Melbourne, I finished my degree, and I was wondering what else is there that I can do? I still wanted to keep exploring, keep seeing what was out there. And um, around about this time, being in university, meeting all these people from diverse backgrounds, made me want to find out more about my own culture and my own heritage. So I spent a little bit of time going on holiday, going to Vietnam. The first time was absolutely amazing. I had no plan whatsoever. Just went there to see how it would be. Um, as someone who grew up with a Vietnamese mother, I thought 
my Vietnamese is fine. I can understand. I can get get around. Oh God. <laughs> the first few times, I felt like I wasn't even speaking the same language, and it made me realize how much I was lacking in the culture that I was raised up in. So that made me feel a little ashamed, but in a different way. Because when I was younger, um, I was really ashamed of my culture because everyone else was white, everyone else spoke perfect English, whereas my mom, she didn't. My mom, she was so obviously different. And that made me cringe, and that made me want to distance myself from that. But um, going back to Vietnam and seeing where my mom came from, seeing how hard she had worked, seeing how beautiful the country was, and hearing the stories of the Vietnamese people, and my my relatives still here in Vietnam made me want to change no more. And coming back was, first of all, to discover, to learn more, and also to apologize for all those years that I'd spent being ashamed of my culture for the wrong reasons. Um, I ended up going back to Vietnam on vacation another time before finally deciding, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to live here. This place is amazing. Why not make it happen here? If I could go back and talk to myself before I left, I would say stay a little longer, work a little bit more, make sure you're financially ready to go. Because when I left, um, I didn't go straight to Vietnam. I went to Europe for a couple of weeks just to see my ex-flatmates and to spend Christmas and New Year's with them. And that was about a month of traveling. Came to Vietnam, did my teaching certificate for another month. That was January, February of that year. It was Lunar New Year. And Lunar New Year, the whole country's on vacation. So imagine it's like New Year, Christmas, and your birthday all in one. So the whole of Vietnam, they take off the whole month and no one's working, no one's hiring. So um, <laughs> um, after that, that was a whole three months of me not working. The fourth month, um, I found the job that I really liked. And also that's when all the places, all the English centers, all the schools, they were opening up new positions, looking for people. And so when I finally got my first paycheck, that was about six months in, and I was not ready for that. Um, I knew at the time that I'd have to be strict with myself to budget. Living in Vietnam, it's really affordable, but when you haven't been working for the past six months and you don't have, mm, uh, when you don't have many savings, then it's probably not the wisest of ideas. I'm really grateful for my friends and family back at home, and even here, they really they helped me through this time. Kind of sucked, but um, definitely made me appreciate where I am now. It was a very conscious decision to go to Vietnam. There was a lot of reasons for you to go back. You finally decided not just to go on holiday, but to really like kind of like uproot yourself from Melbourne, which you have known for a very long time, and move over to Vietnam. Our parents might, you know, might have come to Australia thinking that, okay, they're going to give us like this great life and stuff. Uh -huh. But then to go back. Throw it back in their face, like, why are you going back to <laughs> Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about how that conversation happened with your mom, like, you know, going back to Vietnam versus, <laughs> you know, going to France or Europe or even staying in Australia. Um, my mom, she cried so much. <laughs> she didn't want me to leave at all. She said, Vietnam's so dangerous. 
She said, there's so much pollution over there. People won't treat you well. The food is poisonous. Not just her, but my grandmother, grandmother as well. Every time I talk to my grandparents about Vietnam, because they were refugees themselves, so they really suffered the worst of it. Um, they don't plan on going back anytime soon. They haven't been back since they left, which was over 30 years ago. And so their idea of the country is what it was back then, when it was wartime, when they were suffering, when they were really down at the lowest of the low and there wasn't enough food to eat, there weren't enough clothes to go around. You didn't even know if you were going to make it through until the end of the day or the next day of the week. But um, things have changed so much since then. A lot of my Vietnamese family here, they don't understand why why I would stay here. Because for them, the West, it's it's seen as the best. It's when you are in the West, it's you've succeeded in your life. So why would you want to come here? It's, there's this sort of inferiority complex that you see in a lot of Vietnamese people. And I think, I, I understand, I understand that it can be difficult to feel proud of your roots, proud of your culture, proud of who you are, when the message that you're receiving is, you're not good enough, you're just a developing country or a third world country. Um, and when foreigners come over here and they see that foreigners are able to enjoy their lives, to not worry about the things that Vietnamese worry about, so the day-to-day -day and making a decent wage, providing for their family, getting their kids through school. Um, it can be a bit difficult. It can be challenging. All right. So some part of this conversation becomes a little bit patchy, so you can't really hear what I'm saying. What I basically ask him is, why did she choose Ho Chi Minh City out of all the places in Vietnam? Is it because it's her mom's hometown, or is there something else to it? Ho Chi Minh City is where it's at. It is popping. It is the most populated city in the country. It's known as the cultural capital. There are just so many people here. There's so much energy. There's so much dynamism. There's so many opportunities. This is where people go to start things to make things happen. And you really feel it here. So I also asked what was good about the move and what was unexpected? What's great was... Once you settle in, things are just so easy. For example, um, for myself, I have so much free time, and that free time I can focus on doing what I really love. So during the week, Monday to Friday, I only work eight hours. And the rest of the time, if I'm not working on designing, then I'm reading, I'm meeting up with friends, I'm going for walks in the park. It's just the abundance of free time you have, it's its so liberating and its it feels kind of like an early retirement. Um, on the weekend, I do work much more, but um, I think that's a small price to pay for the five days of leisure and the dash of work that I have to do. I wasn't expecting to fall in love here. That was pretty unexpected. <laughs> um, if you talk to any expat, they will tell you, okay, actually not just any expat. If you talk to a guy here, they'll be like, yeah, dating, no big deal. Um, many of my male friends, they'll have a new date 
every every other day if they wanted to. Um, the dating scene here is really different for men versus women. So for foreign men, they'll have no problem, but for foreign women, it'll be the complete opposite. Um, first of all, getting dates, it's pretty hit and miss, much more miss than it is hit. Um, the main complaints that I've heard and that I've experienced is that the quality of guys here is pretty dismal. Um, the guys that are interesting and are thoughtful, are sweet, are kind. Um, most of them are already in relationships or they're interested in local women. Um, for local men here, a lot of them, they're afraid of approaching Vietnamese women. I've even had, <laughs> I've even had Vietnamese guys tell me their concerns. They think that they're too short or they're not good looking enough to date a foreign woman. So this comes back to the idea of the inferiority complex that I was telling you about. Um, a lot of the time, Vietnamese people don't, not all, but a lot that I have met have this idea that they're not good enough. I think it's something that a lot of us can relate to as well, because it's not just Vietnamese versus Western people, but also like people in themselves. It's something even I've dealt with when you're in a space and you don't feel like you're good enough either, or you feel like you're lacking in something, or you feel um, despite all that you've done, it's still not enough. And you still need to fight for your space, your right to take up space. All right. I want to go back to a little point that you raised because I thought that was very interesting um, when you talked about, you know, foreign and local women. And because yeah. you're mixed race, how do people read you in Vietnam or does that depend on the situation? <laughs> um, I look so different. So I'm just labeled straight up as a foreign woman. Even though I speak Vietnamese, just like a Vietnamese person, um, they'll still be like, nah, nah, she's not one of us. Because to be Vietnamese, most like people will say you have to be born and raised here and of course speak the language fluently. Wow. And so like, I look, I look so different from the Vietnamese, you know? It's really funny because as soon as I'll start talking to locals, the look on their face, they'll do a triple take. Like, what? Wait. I've even had people say back to me, I'm sorry, I don't understand English. And then I'll say it again, and they'll be like, when they realize that I'm speaking to them in Vietnamese and not in English, you know? Like, they'll see my face, it's brown, I have curly hair, I'm tall, curvy. I'm like, yeah, nah, she's not Vietnamese, she's not one of us. And then I open my mouth, and they're just like, ah, what, what? <laughs> oh wow okay that's okay that's really interesting um yeah i mean i'm never coded as anything really whenever i go back to Sri Lanka, <laughs> Philippines. yeah i mean i mean i am coded as something but i'm not coded as filipino in philippines or i'm not coded as Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka. so it's very interesting to like live in that world where like i can totally understand where everything is going on i can understand what people are saying but it's like i'm part of this fabric but no one sees me as part of that fabric <laughs> yeah did you feel like there were certain um, challenges? I mean, I feel because I speak a language, I can work through a lot of the challenges. For example, a normal day in the life, I'll be interacting with Vietnamese people. I'll need to talk to them. I'll need to communicate with them. Um, when I 
conduct my business, I'll be working closely with a lot of Vietnamese people. Um, back then, I used to be really shy about seeing what I need and making my needs known and standards known. But um, I think that just comes with practice. Hearing yourself say out loud, this is what I want. No, that's not okay. This is perfect. That's great. Can we do this instead of that? I think it's just a, a matter of practice. And also, after a certain amount of time, you get used to the flow of things. And even if people try to jib you, you can be like, <laughs> no, no, not me, not me. I like that. So you really have to build that confidence and that, you know, sureness in yourself, I guess, to manage. And I guess out of survival, you probably have to. Um, so tell me, you run a little business. Um, yeah. It's only three months old, so it's still it's fresh right. and new. That's all right. Well, let's talk about how that came about. Like, how did that idea materialize for you? Um, so it comes back to the abundance of free time. <laughs> um so before opening my business, I'd be reading a book like every day or every second day. And after a while, I just got bored of doing that. There's so many amazing books and I'm really keen to start reading again. But I wanted to do something a bit more hands-on rather than just sitting and reading. And sitting and reading is something I've been doing as early as I can remember. Like, when I was seven, eight, nine, wherever I'd go, I'd always have a book in my hand. I'd have like a book right up into my face. I'd be walking to school with a book like that. I wouldn't even look at the road and I'd be reading. But um, now I feel like this is a time when I want to make something and do something that really inspires me. Um, the idea of doing clothing, designing clothing, started when I first came here because Vietnam is such a big country for manufacturing and for producing fabric, textiles, and for making clothing as well. When you come to Vietnam, a lot of people, they get custom-made clothing, they get suits, they get jackets, skirts, dresses, whatever you want, they can be done. There's even a gorgeous little city in the middle of Vietnam. It's uh, called the Ancient Town. It's called Hoi An, and it's next to the beach. It's really rustic really beautiful, these yellow walls, all these lanterns that they um, hang all around the town at night. It just really lights up, fascinating. That town, it's known for custom-made clothing and also leather goods. Um, when I saw what they could do, it just really inspired me. I saw that, wow, people are really making their own clothes here. They're doing stuff that looks really awesome. I started doing that as well, getting a few pieces made here and there. Working with local tailors, it's a challenge because even tailors themselves, they know that they're difficult to work with. If you find the right ones, for example, the ones in Hoi An, they're pretty solid. Um, they can get you a piece done in one or two days. They're really fast. Um, in exchange for that, you pay a higher price. I think it's definitely worth it. But outside of Hoi An, um, for example, in Ho Chi Minh City, where I'm based, if you want to find a tailor, the wait time is around about two weeks. I realized that if I want to start my own business, two weeks, it's too long. When I get clothing made, I don't want to wait two weeks. I want to get it ASAP. So I started looking around for tailors, started asking friends, looking around the neighborhood. And the best thing about being in Ho Chi Minh City with a city, there's, I think, how many people who live here? Is it 9 million, 10 million, maybe even more? 
the best thing about the city is that whoever you want to find, you can. The people who you need to connect with, if you just put your feelers out there, you'll find them. So um, I did manage to find the perfect tailor, the holy grail of tailors, um, after going through a bit of a struggle. So the first person I found, I thought that they would be the perfect fit for my business and that we could grow grow together, you know? Um, but what happened was the first few designs that she did for me, they looked absolutely great. There were a few details that we need to fix here and there, but it wasn't wasn't anything major. We could just tweak them and then she'd have them back and then they'd be great, good to go. But I noticed about two weeks in, um, the pieces that she was giving back to me, they were half done or there'd be details really wrong. Like for example, the lining of the fabric, it would be inside out or the sleeves would be too long or something would be just, something would be off, like a detail that um, we'd already discussed and I asked her to fix, but she didn't. So I tried to talk to her about this asking her what's happening, the quality of the work, it slipped considerably. Is there anything going on? And she told me, no, no, it's fine. It's, it's no big deal. We can work through this. And so I continued to trust her and work with her. Um, around about this period, this was Christmas time, I was getting ready to go back to Australia and I had a big order. This was an order that I had to ship to customers in Australia. And so I had coincided for this order to be ready and for me to take it personally back to Australia. And the tailor told me, yes, I can get it done a week before you leave. A week before I leave, I hit her up and she's like, yes, yes, I'll be done soon. Just give me two more days. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Two days is no big deal. Two days later, I message her. She's like, ah, I can't do two more days. Can I have another two more days? I start to get a bit worried, but when someone hasn't done their work, what can you do, you know? So I tell her, okay, that's fine, but I need to get the clothes as soon as possible. This is a big order going back to Australia. Once I'm gone, this is going to be really, it's going to be a hassle to send it over there. And she says, yes, yes, don't worry, don't worry. And so this back and forth just keeps going up until the morning that I'm leaving. And by then, she's been ignoring my calls. She hasn't responded to any of my texts. And... That's when it finally clicks. This isn't going to happen. Only about a week later, she starts messaging back. She says, no apology. She says, I've already done everything. When you come back, you can take it. When I do come back, same story. She does not respond to my messages. She just tells me, I'm in my hometown. I can't do anything for you. That was about a month ago, a little bit over a month ago. She's still got a bunch of my designs, my fabrics, fabric and designs that I've been doing for friends as well outside my business. And through that experience, I realized I had to change something because when you're doing your own business, you need to work with people you can trust. And finding the people that you can trust, it's a process. And no matter how much you want to trust someone, when they start screwing you over, you have to reconsider 
how you're going to prevent this. So I started talking to my friends, started getting their ideas. I've got a few friends who have businesses themselves and a few friends who are locals here who have businesses themselves as well. And they gave me some pretty good tips. First, have a contract. Because in Vietnam, a lot of work is informal. So I didn't think that having a contract would be a big thing. But I did learn that you need to draw things up to show the other person that you are serious. Uh, second thing is, you need to be able to contact this person in the event of something like what happened last time happened. So you need to know their phone numbers. You need to know not just their phone numbers, but the phone numbers of the people around them as well. So here in Vietnam, trust is based not solely on that person, is based on the community as well. So it's a group effort more than anything else. The more you know about the person you're working with, the better. And the third thing to increase that trust is to make that person really want to work with you. Um, <laughs> to do that, uh, the price that I pay them per piece, it's at least 50% more than what the standard rate is. When my Vietnamese friends, they ask me, oh, how much do you pay for this? Yeah, this mate, I tell them and their jaws drop. They're like, what? You pay that much? Why? It's because I value the work that my team does and I want them to stay with me. I want them to, I want us to be able to grow together and to work, work together for a long time and to make something big out of this. It would have been nice to know this a little bit earlier, but hey, that's what it's for, you know? It's all, it's all about learning. It's all about growing. Were there times that you kind of regretted coming to Vietnam? Were there times where you felt like, I don't know why I thought I could do this? <laughs> um, when I told my grandma what happened, she was like, that's what Vietnamese people are like. You can't trust them. They're all like that. You should just come back here. It's too dangerous. It's a waste of your time. You can't find good people there. The thing is, that happened one time because I feel I went into this with my eyes wide open. I went into this super naive and I didn't even think about asking my friends for advice before any of this happened. Like, oh, how should I do this? What's the best way to start this? I just jumped right into the deep end and just took things as they came. So yes, it happened, but it's not the worst thing that can happen. And also I'm super grateful that it happened early on. And because of that event, I've been able to cut ties, been able to change my business model and make it more to how I want and how, how I best see fit for myself. Because of the first tailor, I've learned a lot of things. And now I'm working with two new tailors and they are fantastic. What I've taken from the first tailor, I've brought into the relationship with the new ones and the lessons that I've learned as well. So I think whatever happens from now on, I'll be able to deal with it. I'll be able to bounce back. And like I said, it's it's all an experience. All right. So you have been in, you know, you've been in Vietnam for some time now. We're going to sidestep to something a little bit less um, heavy and go something a little bit sure. lighthearted. Okay. What are the must-see places, must-do things? Ooh, must-see places. All right. Um, the thing is, if you have the time, I probably recommend at least two weeks to visit Vietnam. If you can do three, even better. Um, 
must-see, the most beautiful part of the country, I think, is up north. So you can fly into Hanoi, and from there you can take a bus to go see uh, Mai Chau, which is a gorgeous little village three hours away from Hanoi. And it's in the heart of the mountains. There's caves that you can visit and explore, go hiking up. Um, there's not many people there, so it's really quiet. You can get a bicycle, drive through the ri um, ride through the rice paddies. There's still um, a lot of village life that you can experience, just people going about their daily life, harvesting rice and pulling along their water buffaloes. If you're not a fan of the mountains, there's also Ninbin, which is absolutely stunning. It's these huge cast formations which just shoot out of the ground and it's done all over um, like a, a lake system or a river system. I'm not sure which one's which, but whatever. So imagine a landscape filled just a huge, huge lake and there's all these big rock formations. Super quiet, really peaceful. That one I definitely recommend. If you can drive in Vietnam, I would definitely recommend it. Drive a motorcycle that, or a scooter. That's the best way to get around, a scooter or a bicycle. Or if you can find someone to drive you around, even better. You're on vacation. You might as well kick your feet up. Um, away, leaving the north in the center of Vietnam, I would definitely recommend Da Nang. It's right next to the beach. Um, it's one side you have the beach, the other side you have the mountains, and you also have one of the most gorgeous drives um, I think it's been rated the, one of the most beautiful drives around the world by Top Gear. So it's just this peninsula, you drive along it, along the beach, you have these amazing views. You can go by Lady Buddha, she's at the bottom of it. Oh no, she's at the top. She's at the top of the mountain. And it's just a nice little day trip. Close by to Da Nang, you have Hoi An. So the little ancient city I was telling you about. What a lot of people do is they stop by in Da Nang for a day or two, and then after that they spend another two, three days in Hoi An to get their shopping fix, get some custom-made clothing or some leather goods, have some really good food. That city was a trading city, so a lot of um, traders from all around the world, they'd come, they'd bring their local cuisine, spices, techniques, and then they'd, it would integrate with the local cuisine. Another place in the center of Vietnam is Hue, which is known as the old capital of Vietnam. So you can imagine the emperors of Vietnam with their royal chefs who'd be doing just the most amazing cuisine. So if you love eating, that's definitely one of the places to go. And it's also a very historic city. Down south, you have Ho Chi Minh City. It's hectic, it's chaotic, it's beautiful, it's buzzing. It's got lots of great nightlife, amazing street food, lots of fun people. It's really busy, so prepare yourself. The first time I came, I didn't like it. The second time, I was like, hey, this is fun. Living here, it's a different perspective. But um, yeah, if I were on vacation, I probably wouldn't want to spend too much time in the city. Ooh, Dalat. Dalat is kind of like south center. It's a little colonial town in the middle of the mountains, in the central highlands. So it's really nice and cool. It's a bit of a change from the rest of the country. Um, the French actually came there um, in the 50s or 60s, and they made it so it was a little retreat away from the rest of the country. Um, a little interesting fact about it, they don't have any traffic lights there, but things seem to work out.
lots of cute cafes, lots of cute views, temples, super chill vibes. So coming back full circle, now that you mentioned that the French were in Vietnam, have you ever used your French in Vietnam? <laughs> nope. I mean, like, old Vietnamese people, they'll try a couple of French words with me. But um, locals here, their English is much better than their Vietnamese. There is quite a big French expat community here, though. So with with the French expats, I've definitely spoken more. But with locals, I feel the influence, it's much more obvious in the, in terms of the cuisine rather than the language. And do you find being multilingual in Vietnam... Um a plus, I guess, in your day-to-day and who you can network with and get to know and what you do? Definitely. Um, I feel if you can speak the local language, even just like a little bit, a couple of words, a couple of phrases, it really helps to get people to warm up to you and to start sparking connections, opening doors. Even just a couple of words or a short basic conversation, people will already be trying to invite you into their homes or invite you to have a drink or a coffee or to a meal. People here are really sweet. And uh, also coming full circle, has your family in Australia kind of accepted (laughs) your time in Vietnam as not a bad decision? (laughs) Um, My mom, she cries every single time I leave the country. She still does. She's always trying to convince me to stay, but I feel after the fifth, sixth time that I left, she she's come a little bit more to terms with her daughter probably won't be back for a while, so she's she's just got to manage. Because in Vietnamese culture, it's it's very normal, and I think this can apply to other. Southeast Asian cultures or other Asian cultures, it's very normal for the children to help their parents in a much more involved way. So, for example, um, so the mother would rely on the child for things like translation, things like helping out with parent-teacher interviews or calling like Optus to talk about the phone bill, just like those sorts of things. And um, your parents kind of expect you to be there just helping out. Um, I think it broke my mom's heart to know that I wouldn't do that for her. <laughs> but she does have five other children, so. Do you think your grandparents or your, you know, your mom would ever go back to Vietnam? Uh, my mom actually did come back last year, and she really likes it here. I think she really, really enjoys the culture, really enjoys the close contact with your friends and family, especially in the countryside. There's a little village, which is her hometown. And you can imagine just walking to this tiny little village, walking down the street, and there's just houses on both sides. And along these rows of houses, it's just full of your family, your extended family, all your relatives, your grandmas, granduncles, their children, their children's children. My mom, she really loves that. So what plans for the future? So I'm working towards my dream, just like my 15-year-old self when she had the idea of going to France, starting to work towards it. I've got the dream of growing my business, Dynasty the Label, into something big, like real big. Um, Right now, what I'm doing is I'm teaching English. That's my main gig. But my side hustle is my my baby, Dynasty the Label. So the idea is to switch around and 
eventually in the future just do fashion full time. That's a really nice way to round things off. How do people get in touch with your work or what you do? Like, what would be the best way to, to follow? The best way to find my baby, Dynasty the Label, is through Facebook or Instagram. You can just type it in and we'll be there. Follow our progress. Watch us flourish. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Kimmy and I really hope you enjoyed this episode as well. If you want to know what Kimmy is going to be up to, you can follow her on Facebook or Instagram at Dynasty the Label. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Till then, see you later.